I have a book, and as I said last time, I've had it for a year and finally got around to reading it. It's by a guy named James Kugel. It's called Great Poems of the Bible. And as I mentioned last time, Kugel is a professor of Bible studies at Barillion University in Israel and professor of Hebrew literature at Harvard University. He was also the poetry editor for Harper's Magazine. I have several of his books. I enjoy him a great deal. He's a Jew. He's a believing Jew, but he's not a rabbi. So the way the book is organized, he is eminently qualified to do his own translations, so he does, with the interesting exception of Psalm 23. For Psalm 23, he says, I really like King Jimmy. So that's what he used. Anyway, he does his own translations, which, as I say, he is eminently qualified to do. Most of his books that I have read have to do with figuring out how the writers of the Bible thought about things. He knows the New Testament probably better than anybody here. He knows a lot of the literature from the area, and so he's able to sort of put a lot of this stuff in context. I like his translations. His translations are designed for the modern ear. One of the things about standard translations of the Bible is sort of like watching old biblical movies, you know, like Ben-Hur or The Robe or anything like that, and everybody stands up like this and speaks in a deep, formal tone of voice for everything to include ordering a pizza. And there's a tendency to do that in Bible translations because you're handling the Word of God. And you certainly want to treat it respectfully, and you want to treat it formally. His translations are, colloquial is not the right word, but they are more congenial to the modern era. So we're going to do Psalm 42 tonight. So you can follow along in whatever version you have. I will read from his translation. So as a deer longs for a coursing stream... So my soul longs for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God, for the time when I may go and see God's face. Night and day, tears have been my food, as all day long I hear, where is your God? But I do think of this as I pour out my soul, how I will go with a crowd, leading a throng of revelers up to the very temple with songs of rejoicing and praise. So why be downcast, my soul, or murmur within me? Trust in God, for I will yet praise him for helping me, my God. Whenever my soul is downcast, I call out to you. From the Jordan Highlands and Hermon, from Mount Mazar, and depth to watery depth, calling out above the beat of your streams as all your waves and breakers sweep over me. The Lord sends forth his protection by day, And at night, it stays at my side. A prayer to my living God. I say to you, my God, my strength, don't forget me. Don't let me go humbled by hostile threats. With death or broken bones, my enemies curse me. As all day long, I hear, where is your God? But why be downcast, my soul, or murmur within me? Trust in God, for I will yet praise him for helping me, my God. That's his translation. The point of the essay that he has that goes with this is talking about the soul. 
and the nature of the soul. And those of you who have been through the Musar course will recognize the diagram I have up on the screen. And that is my block diagram of a human being. Let's start with soul. And one of the things that he says is that the words that are translated as soul in Scripture all have to do with vital functions because it was recognized that if the soul left, the body died. So the only thing that would be left is the clay. So it's called breath, nephesh, neshama, ruach, all of which are translated variously as soul, spirit, or breath, depending on the context. In other languages, pneumos is Greek for soul, and again, that means breathing. Spirit is to inspire, inspiration, breathing. So lots of cultures and languages associate the soul with breathing or breath, that kind of thing. The word used here in this psalm is nephish. But it's interesting, one of the things that he says is in other contexts, the word nephish is translated as neck. So it's the idea that it's a connector between the body and the outside world. And he says, as a deer longs for a coursing stream, so my soul longs for you. What we're talking about is thirst. Well, where do you feel thirst? In your neck or your throat. So the use of the word nephish there for throat goes with the deer being thirsty, if you will. One of the things that he talks a great deal about in this little essay, in fact, the title of his essay is kind of good. It's called The Double Agent as in your soul doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to God. It's just keeping you alive while it belongs to God. And so when you die, it goes back to the God who gave it to you. On the diagram above, I've got nephesh as what the Christians would call the spirit. And I've got the neshama as what Christians would call the soul. Neither your nephesh nor your neshama do you have control over. There are parts of you that exist, you know they exist, yet you don't have direct access to them. So he talks about the soul in that way. In translation, the words that are used for soul can also, as I say, mean breath. They can mean heart. Those are all variously translated as soul. In some parts of scripture, when it says, my soul, it's simply another way of saying I. My soul calls out to you is simply a poetic way, if you will, of saying, I call out to you. But in other parts of scripture, it's very clear that the soul is something separate and distinct from you, whatever you are, and the soul is being talked to. And that's why he picked this particular psalm. If you look at the psalm, whenever my soul is downcast, I call to you. And why be downcast, my soul, or murmur within me? So he is speaking to his soul. He's saying, why are you downcast and why do you murmur within me? And one of the things that is common today, even with our neglect of the soul compared to biblical times is stuff goes on in your soul that for some reason you are 
deeply melancholy. You don't know why. For some reason, you may be happy and excited, and you're not really sure why. One of the things that happens to me occasionally, not as often as I would like, but occasionally, is I'll be just sitting minding my own business, and all of a sudden I'll get this shot of joy. Don't know where it came from. Don't know what it's for, except it just happens. So the idea that there are parts of you that you don't have direct control over, and in parts of the Bible, and especially Psalm 42, because that's why he chose this psalm, there is this conversation that he's having with his soul, and he's talking to it, giving it a pep talk. Quit being so downcast. And in this particular psalm, it's obvious that He's not dealing with it as a poetic way of saying, why am I downcast? Now, the other thing about this, which is interesting, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, for the time when I may go and see God's face. When this was written, the process of going and seeing God's face talks about going to the temple or the tabernacle. Because later on, it says... But I do think of this as I pour out my soul, how I will go with a crowd, leading a throng of revelers up to the very temple with songs of rejoicing and praise. So the idea of seeing God face to face in the previous verse is talking about his longing to come into the presence of God in the temple. Night and day tears have been my food, as all day long I hear, where is your God? This is obviously talking about worldly affliction. I am being mocked by those who see me in some kind of distress or are causing me some kind of distress. It isn't clear which way. But I am being mocked by people who are saying to me, where is your God? In other words, why is this happening to you? A la Job, where his so-called comforters say, well, I mean, if you're suffering all this, that must mean that your God is angry with your sins because you must have sinned because otherwise this wouldn't be happening to you. So he's being mocked about where is your God and what he does to comfort himself and his soul is he looks forward then to a pilgrimage up to the temple where he can see God face to face. And by the way, this is a chiasm because it ends with death or broken bones, my enemies curse me, as all day long I hear, where is your God? The penultimate verse. So this is certainly by way of comforting his soul, giving it a pep talk, if you will. And the idea is that when he is downcast or when his soul is downcast, his remedy then is to call out to God and to come into the presence of God as best he can. He says, whenever my soul is downcast, I call out to you from the Jordan Highlands and Hermon, from Mount Mizar, and depth to watery depth. And by the way, according to Kugel, this guy is a northerner. His language and the places he refers to are all in northern Israel. And the idea of doing soul maintenance by calling out to God and by anticipating a trip to the temple. The thing that's interesting about it is, in this sense, the soul is something separate from him. 
in his conscious mind, he sees that his soul is downcast. He can feel that his soul is downcast. And so what he does in his conscious mind is he gives his soul a pep talk, and he says, all right, whenever you're down, the way to fix that is to call out to God and to anticipate being able to go up to the temple and see God face to face. So the idea there is there's him, his conscious mind, and then there's God, and the soul then becomes the bridge, if you will, between him, his conscious mind, and God. And so when the soul needs to be revived, what he does in his conscious mind is he tells his soul, okay, we're going to call out to God, and oh, by the way, at some point in the future here, we're going to whip on down to the temple, and we're going to see God face to face, all of which is by way of reviving his soul within himself. Now, in modern times, the soul has sort of been subsumed by the mind. Philosophy, for example, doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the soul. They talk about the mind, and they've divided the mind into various parts, the id, the ego, and the superego, and all that nonsense. And so we've sort of lost track of soul maintenance. In medieval times, after the Bible was written, you can read books that talk about soul maintenance stuff that you do and and exercises that you do and going to specialists, i.e. priests, so that you can do soul maintenance when your soul is messed up. Some of that would be called psychiatry today. I'm not sure that psychiatrists actually do soul maintenance because I don't know that they recognize the soul. But the idea then of having your soul out of joint somehow and going to a specialist to help you get your soul back on track was something that was prevalent through, I would imagine, the 13th or 14th centuries. And then as we started into the age of reason, so-called, that sort of went by the wayside and has now become passe. Now, as I said, he calls this little essay the double agent. And I've talked about it in terms of having a part of you that you don't really have access to. And it's my belief that we lost access to some of that when we ate of the forbidden fruit. In other words, I think that's one of the side effects of doing what God told us not to do. So the idea that you have parts of you that are not accessible is unremarkable. I mean, we even believe that today. Psychiatry calls it the subconscious and all sorts of ways to talk about it. But the idea that there is part of you that you don't have access to is not controversial. There's a rabbinic story. A man marries a king's daughter. They go off and set up their household. And he goes in to see the king one day. And the king says, what was going on that you got angry and beat your servants the other day? And so the guy goes back and says, all right, who's been ratting me out to the king? And one of his servants looked at him kind of pityingly, you married the king's daughter. She's the one that tells dad. So the soul is in that sense the king's daughter. And the soul then rats you out, if you will, if you need ratting out, but you understand what I'm talking about metaphorically. And I'll read a proverb to you. And I'm in Proverbs 20, starting in verse 27. 
The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching out all his innermost parts. So in biblical times, the idea that you have this part of you that's not under your control, that you can communicate with, but it's also the thing that God uses to check you out. So in that sense, it's like the king's daughter in this rabbinic story. You're married to it. It's part of you. It was given to you by God. But it also is the thing that God then uses to search out you. So in that case, as I say, he calls this little essay the double agent. You don't live if it's not there. Once it departs, you die. But it's not under your control. And it's the thing that God uses then to search out your innermost parts. One of the things in medieval literature, I've read it in old fairy tales, the idea that when you sleep, your soul goes wandering and goes traveling while you're asleep. Again, this goes with this idea that the soul is not completely under your control. You can communicate with it, but it is something that's given to you by God, and when God chooses to take it back, you die. Now, the other thing that Kugel talks about, which I find fascinating, is in Scripture, so Psalm 116, So return, O my soul, to your place, for the Lord has been generous with you. Again, the idea there is the soul is out of place. Aloud to God I cry out, I cry out that he might hear me. In time of trouble I seek help from my Lord, my hand is stretched out unceasingly, but my soul refuses to be comforted, Psalm 77. The idea that the soul has sort of a life of its own, independent of you, is all over Scripture. There's another one. It's in Ecclesiastes. When you die, the body returns to the dust and the soul returns to God who gave it. I think that's Ecclesiastes. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. Interestingly, that does not connote immortality. It simply says that the soul was given to you by God, and when he takes it back, you die. It doesn't really say anything about the state of the soul after death. The idea of immortality is fairly late in the Bible. Early on in the Bible, it's simply sleeping with your fathers. In fact, I think the earliest indication of life after death, and I'm doing this by memory, is when Saul consults the witch of Endor to bring up the spirit of Samuel. That's his first indication that something is going on after death. Normally death is described as he's gathered to his people, or he's sleeping with his fathers, or various things like that. But it isn't until fairly late that you get this idea of life everlasting or eternal life. It doesn't show up in the Torah and just sort of fleeting examples throughout the rest of the Tanakh. It's not a big part of the Old Testament. Jews are not adverse to reincarnation. In fact, there are fairly mainstream rabbis that believe in the recycling of souls because, again, Scripture is silent on that. It's, again, a rabbinic speculation. The idea that the presence of God is restorative to the soul 
is all over Scripture. In fact, that's what we're talking about in Psalm 42 that we've been reading. When the soul gets out of sorts, the ultimate restoration is to come into the presence of God. This essay is like somebody just slapped you upside the head because the perspective here is very different than the Christian perspective. It is probably also different than the modern Jewish perspective. And what he's trying to do is get you into the perspective of the writer at that time. And I'm using perspective a lot. From my perspective, the one to whom it was given is probably the closest to the correct understanding. I know it makes sense. I don't know if it's right, but it makes sense. (laughs) Just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's right. But the idea of getting into the understanding of whoever wrote this, when he wrote it, and understanding what it would have meant to him, I think is valuable. Which isn't to say that a different understanding at a different time isn't also valuable. The soul belongs to God because he gave it. It is given to you and it's your job to schlep it around, to take care of it, to periodically, as best you can, get it back into the presence of God so it gets recharged, if you will. But the care and maintenance of your soul becomes your responsibility. So, for example, when David said in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, what he's saying is renew my soul there. I have stained it. I have besmirched it. I have messed it up. In doing what I did... I have done grave damage to the soul that you gave me. And what I'm asking you to do in Psalm 51 is to forgive me and then restore my soul to the pristine condition it was before you gave it to me. So David is responsible for the fact that his soul has gotten messed up by his own actions. So in that sense, we are responsible for what happens to our soul because the things we do have an effect on the soul. And so what you have to do is periodically come into the presence of God to get your soul cleansed, refreshed, etc. But the idea that you're responsible for the care and maintenance of the soul even though you don't have complete control over it is the whole point of Psalm 42. And the final thing, I'll read this out of Kugel, it's very nice. To some it might thus seem that the soul, in the biblical sense, is now gone forever, its former territory having been gerrymandered into various adjoining provinces governed today by psychiatrist, physician, moral philosopher, and perhaps yet others. But certainly this is not so. However much our own times may seem to have obscured it, the fundamental duality of each person's inside cannot be altogether suppressed. For this reason, more than all others, the psalmist's refrain has a special resonance and relevance. In today's world, an insistence that, despite appearances, the soul's reality is not to be denied. So why be downcast, my soul, or murmur within me? Behind this question lies the double agent's paradox, the idea that that which is most inside is also the only way to the outside that deep within each human being is a little room, and on its far wall, a tiny door. And when he says the outside, it's capital O. The outside being the universe outside of you. 
the soul then becomes your connection to the great outside. I like his metaphor that there's a little room, and on the far side of that room there's a small door, and that small door leads to the great outside. The room is inside you, it's your soul. And the door then leads to God. I really enjoy the book. I like him and I like his scholarship and the way he thinks. And the idea, as I say, of getting into what it would have meant back then, I find very useful. I recommend any of his books. In fact, one of his more charming books is In the Valley of the Shadow. He had terminal cancer and was healed. And he talks about his faith and how his faith healed him. It's a very powerful book. And he, as far as I know, is still alive today. And he wrote the book, I don't know how many years ago. But the other part of this is, even with all of the pollution, and I'm talking about pollution in the intellectual sense, not the smoggy sense, even with all the pollution of science fiction movies and all that kind of stuff that we have, all of which are derived remotely around this idea, the fact still remains that those stories are germane because we do recognize that there is part of us to which we have no access, or at least no direct access. You know, whether you call it the subconscious or the soul or the spirit or the nephesh or the neshama or whatever, the fact is everybody knows that that exists. That part is not controversial, which is why I think going back to what the Bible says about it and trying to understand it from that perspective at that time is really useful because it clears away all of the pollution that's grown up around it since then. And he talks about that in here. In a comment that he made that the soul has been gerrymandered today and you've got parts of it that now belong to the psychiatrist, parts of it belong to the doctors, parts of it belong to the moral philosophers, and it's all split up. And you have people that take drugs to try and access it. I mean, that was sort of the deal of the 60s, you know, the LSD and all that kind of stuff. All that's by way of trying to gain access to this part that you know that you don't have access to. So it's as old as humanity. What Satan has done over the millennia is screw the concept up so bad that it's hard to find it again, even though you know it's there. But it's hard to come up with, how do you think about it? How do you talk to it? What are your responsibilities toward it? I, I have never in my life taken, I, no, that's not true, I did once. I injured my back and they gave me some kind of a pill. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning and the room was going like this. And I took all the rest of those pills and flushed them down the toilet and never had another one. I have no use for that stuff. But... The idea that people are looking for it and will try anything to find it is fresh as today. Mm-hmm.